how many of you have played the game Pin the Tail on the Donkey? Is that most of us? Most okay. Now, you would think, you would think that blindfolding a person and spinning them around and around and around and around, that would make it more difficult for them to actually pin the tail on the donkey. But did you know the exact opposite might be true? The next time you're at a party and they crack out the game pin the tail on the donkey, try this. Put a blindfold on someone, take them to a park or an open field or a beach, put a blindfold on them, and then ask that person to walk as long as they can in a straight line. Then see what happens next. See if they fare any better than when you play pin the tail on the donkey. Because if you wait long enough, you know what will happen? Your blindfolded friend will walk right back to you. Several years ago, NPR did a story entitled, A Mystery, Why Can't We Walk Straight? And the story was about a series of tests that revealed that people cannot walk in a straight line when blindfolded. Instead, the researchers discovered that they fall into a circular pattern even though they think they are walking straight. And the story concluded with this paragraph. They say this. They say, Humans apparently slip into circles when we can't see an external focal point, like a mountaintop, a sun, a moon. And then here's the last sentence of the article. Without a corrective, our insides take over and there's something inside us that won't stay straight. How true that statement is Without a corrective, our insides take over and there's something inside us that won't stay straight. And truth be told, if we're all really honest with ourselves, we'd have to admit that this is true just not when it comes to walking, is it? No, we'd also have to confess that this is also true when it comes to our behavior our attitudes, and our actions. What I mean is, without a corrective, there is something inside us that won't stay straight, and that something is sin. Now, I'm, I'm going to argue that this is really self-evident. Even though we try to numb ourselves to the reality that there is a holy God to whom we are accountable to and to whom we have rebelled against, even though we try to ignore this, even though we try to suppress it, we still know it to be true. We are sinners. We are, no one comes into this world right with God. We are not right with God. 
And we, come, we become most aware of this, I want to suggest, when confronted with the reality of death. There have been several occasions in my short life where I've served as a pastor where I've been able to be bedside next to a person, a terminally ill person, moments before they die. And in those moments where it's just the two of us in that hospital room, no one else is around, it's just us two. In those moments, do you know what each and every one of them share with me? Their regrets. Talk to any person staring death in the face and they will confess to you that in their quiet moments they have regret. They have guilt. And they have shame for the things they've done in their life. And you know what those regrets, guilt, and shame are? Friend, please hear me. They are the symptoms we experience as a result of our sin. And you know what they do? They testify to the fact that there is something inside us that won't stay straight. And you know this to be true in your own life, don't you? I know I do. And the closer we march towards death, the closer this reality presses upon us, we feel the weight upon our souls. You see, friend, the greatest question in life, and it's a question every one of us needs to think through and wrestle with, the greatest, most important question I want to argue in life is this, and that is, how can sinful people be made right with a holy God? How can sinful people like me and sinful people like you who will one day see your Creator face to face how can we be made right as sinners with a holy God? Well, I believe our passage this morning answers that very question. This morning we're going to take a break from our study of Ephesians in honor of Reformation Sunday. Most people think of October 31st, tomorrow, as the day when kids dress up and go door to door and and knock on doors. However, October 31st is significant for another reason, and that is on October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther knocked on a door, the door of the Castle Church in Wittenberg, and he nailed his 95 theses, sparking the Protestant Reformation. And part of the reason why we're taking a break from Ephesians to honor this day is because it is exceptionally hard to overstate the significance of the Protestant Reformation. For the central issue of the Reformation was this very question. 
And that is, how can sinners be made right before a holy God? You see, what, what prompted Luther to nail his 95 theses were several atrocities that were being committed by the Roman Catholic Church. A, a primary one being the selling of indulgences. Right? Under the endorsement of the Pope, a friar at that time by the name of John Tetzel, he told illiterate peasants that they could pay the way for a deceased loved one for them to escape and leave purgatory and enter heaven. He, he came up with a little jingle. Maybe you know what it is. He, the jingle was, As soon as a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. You know it. You know it. Have you been buying from him? <laughs> this, this is the little jingle that Tetzel used to sell indulgences. And the Pope intended to use the monies collected by Tetzel to build St. Peter's Basilica. You see, the Catholic Church was teaching that a person could merit their salvation. You could pay to have someone obtain salvation. And to be fair, the Catholic Church still teaches this. In fact, several years ago, I attended a Catholic wedding with my wife, and it was a full mass, this Catholic wedding. And during the wedding, the priest got up there and he prayed these exact words. He said, Lord, help us merit our salvation. However, based on the clear teaching of the Bible, Martin Luther rejected this notion. We cannot merit our salvation. No, in order for sinners to be saved, sinners like you and me, we need something we do not possess. And you know what that is? It's the righteousness of God. Without that, friend, you have no hope of salvation and eternal life with God. That is what you need. The righteousness of God. And our passage this morning shows us how we can obtain it. So if you haven't already, please turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3. That's page 941 in that paperback Bible. This morning we're going to be studying chapter 3, verses 31 through 26. <laughs> and uh, like with the Reformation, it's really, really, really hard to overstate the significance of this passage, indeed this paragraph. One commentator has said that this is the single most important paragraph ever written. Martin Luther called it, quote, the chief point, the very central place of the epistle of Romans, and he said, and the whole Bible. And as you're turning there, let me give you the context. In the first three chapters of Romans, Paul has been teaching that all people, and by all he means all people, all people are under God's judgment and wrath 
for failing to worship God as God that the creation has openly declared. And in Romans 3, verses 10 through 12, Paul summarizes his argument up until this point, and this is what he writes. I have it on the screen. He says, None is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, before we move any further, notice the force of these statements. No one is righteous. No, not one. I don't mean to hurt your feelings, but this is true of everyone in this room. Each of us lacks righteousness. We all are guilty before God under His wrath and unable to save ourselves. This is what we call bad news. Right? And if you're listening, it should produce terror in your heart. Look, more frightening than anything you're going to see tomorrow in Halloween. This truth that you cannot save yourself and you're under God's wrath ought to send shivers down your spine. But hear now our passage this morning. Follow along with me as I read verses 21 through 26. Paul writes this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Remember, we need the righteousness of God. We don't have it. But notice what he says in verse 21. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested. Apart from the law, meaning apart from obedience to God's commands, there's a way the righteousness of God has been revealed. And notice he says, apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, meaning they've been prophesying, telling us about this righteousness, this coming righteousness of God. So Paul, what is it? And here's what he says, verse 22. The righteousness of God, listen, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction whether you're, whether whatever you think you are, there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, meaning we have not honored God as God. We're all guilty and condemned. Verse 24, but listen, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. We're going to circle back to that word propitiation and what it means here in a moment. Who He put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen and Amen. This January in New Orleans, New Orleans is going to host the Miss Universe pageant. And how many of you remember what happened to Steve Harvey several years ago? You guys remember what happened? For those of you that don't know, Steve Harvey, who was hosting the event, he announced the wrong winner of the Miss Universe competition. He mistakenly announced Miss Columbia as the winner, when in fact it was Miss Philippines. <laughs> and to make matters worse, when Steve Harvey apologized on Twitter, he misspelled Miss Philippines and called her Miss Philippians. <laughs> I, I appreciate the biblical reference, but now I've never seen a Miss Universe contest, but from what I'm told on Wikipedia, for a woman to become Miss Universe, she has to win in two categories, appearance and personality. Right? It's not enough for her just to be very attractive, yet have no personality. Likewise, she cannot win on personality alone. To be Miss Universe, please hear me, you need both. Well, in a very similar way, friend, for you to be reconciled to a holy God, you need two things as well. Namely, number one, redemption, the forgiveness of your sins. And number two, righteousness, a perfect law-keeping record. Friend, please hear me. God demands both. And the amazing thing that Paul teaches in this text is that you and I can receive both simply by faith in Christ alone. Notice what Paul says there in verses 22 through 24. I know it's, it's tightly packed, and honestly, we could spend weeks in this paragraph. But notice, Paul says you can have both God's righteousness and redemption through faith in Jesus Christ. Romans 3.22, it says, the righteousness of God through faith in Christ Jesus to all who believe. Then a verse later in verse 24, the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, who God put forward to be a propitiation by His blood, to be received by what? Faith. Now, the Bible has a word for someone whose sins have been forgiven and declared to be righteous before God. And you know what that word is? The word is justified. Have your eyes fall once more in verse 24. Do you see it there? When the Bible says you are justified, that's a declaration where God, where in God, God views you as, we could put it this way, just as you've never sinned and just as you've always obeyed. Just as you've never sinned, just as you've always obeyed. You see, justification 
is not simply redemption or the forgiveness of sins. It's not less than that, but it's much more. In justification, friend, please hear me, Jesus' righteousness, His perfect sinless life is credited to you. Thus, while you might not actually be righteous, you still have sin, God views you as righteous because of Christ's righteousness. Think of it like this. <laughs> Clint mentioned about showers this morning, right? You know, you get in a shower, you get, you get rinsed clean. Some of us have this morning. You get rinsed clean of all the sleep and the dirt, and then you put on fresh clothes, right? Okay. In justification, your sins are wiped clean, washed clean by Jesus' blood. And now in God's sight, you are clothed in the righteous robes of Jesus. And all this comes to the sinner, Paul says, by grace, through faith. So back to the question we started with. And, and this might be the very question you're that is heavy on your heart as these words leave my mouth right now, friend. Please, please hear me. You are a soul that will never die. You will spend eternity somewhere, either with your triune God in blessed peace and joy in heaven or somewhere else in hell suffering for the sins you've committed. Only two options. And here's the question you need to answer, the question we started with, and that is, how can a sinful person like you, how can a sinful person like me be made right with God? And our text, answers the mor- this, this, our text this morning answers the question with this statement, and that's this. Sinners are justified by grace through faith, and we would say, alone. You, friend, can be justified by grace through faith. This is the incredible news of the Bible and the main point I want to argue of this paragraph. Sinful people can be justified in God's sight simply by faith in Christ alone. And there are several truths that Paul takes the time to highlight in this paragraph concerning this important doctrine of justification that I want to draw your attention to. And man, I pray that we as a church, we would just put our arms around these. We would know these. We would embrace them. We would love them. And we'd praise God for them. Okay? And the first thing I want to draw your attention to that I believe Paul highlights is this. And that notice, the first truth is that justification is not earned by obedience to God's command. We could say this, justification is unmerited. Look again at the first couple of verses. And actually, um, you know what, for grins, let's go, let's start back in verse 19. I'm going to walk here so I can have light to see if I fail there. Verse 19 of chapter 3, Paul writes this, Now we know that whatever the law says, It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be accountable to God. 
Who's accountable to God? Say it, who? The whole world is accountable to God. And he says this in verse 20, for by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. You know who that is? That's you. That's me. No human being will be justified in his sights, sight by works of the law. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. And now our text this morning, verse 21, he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. I mean, apart from obedience to God's commands. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Justification is unmerited. Now, you don't don't have to say it out loud, and actually, please, don't say it out loud. But think, what is your favorite type of food? If, If you were stranded on an island and you could only have one type of food to eat, what would it be for you? Not too long ago, my world got turned upside down and forever blessed when I walked into Kroger and I saw this. Behold! Potato chips that taste like prime rib with creamy horseradish sauce. Glory, amen. Can I get a witness, please? Okay? Okay? I will never eat another type of potato chip. You know why? Because prime rib is my favorite food. If I was stranded on an island and I could only eat one thing for the rest of my life, it would be rare prime rib with creamy horseradish sauce. And you know what? These chips as well. But listen to me, that wasn't always the case. It wasn't until just about 18 years ago that I started to like prime rib. You see, please hear me. Although I was offered to taste prime rib many times in the past, I always rejected it. And you know why I rejected it? Because I thought I knew what it tasted like. But I didn't. In fact, to my shame, I now realize that in the past I didn't even know the good thing that was offered to me, the thing that I was rejecting. Friend, people can often do the same with Christianity. In fact, one of my favorite questions to ask people who don't consider themselves to be Christians is, tell me, what do you think Christianity teaches? Especially, what do you think Christianity teaches in regards to salvation? And I ask them that because I want to hear what they think they are rejecting. And most often what they're rejecting is not biblical Christianity. (laughs) I mean, more times than I can count, whenever I ask people that question, you know, what do you think Christianity teaches in regards to, to salvation? This is the answer I get most often, something like this. They say, well, they say, I know I, I will go to heaven Spain to God, if I'm, if I'm really, really good, I obey his commands, and at the end of the day, 
the, the scales tip in my favor that I've done more good than bad. And then they often follow up with this. And to be honest with you, the reason why I reject Christianity is I'm kind of turned off by a God like that. To which I respond, yeah, me too. And I tell them what they're rejecting isn't actually biblical Christianity. I said, friend, you're rejecting something else. For look at what Paul clearly teaches in this passage. We are not justified by works of the law. This means we cannot earn God's salvation through our obedience to his commands. For look at what verse 21 states. The righteousness of God has been manifest, not by your righteousness, no. The righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, meaning obedience to the law. Instead, God's saving righteousness has been revealed in Jesus Christ. Friend, this is what makes the Bible good news. The message of the Bible is not try harder and maybe God might grant you entrance into heaven. Maybe. That's not good news. That's terrible news. No, the message of the Bible, the message that the Bible is saying to you, friend, right now, is to trust that Jesus Christ has done everything necessary to make you right with God. You cannot earn your salvation. (laughs) This is why you need Jesus. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus earned salvation for all who would believe in him. You know, one one of the questions I often ask when I'm counseling someone in the church, outside the church, wherever it might be for the first time, is asking this. So tell me, why do you need Jesus? And their answers are very revealing. Friends, we need Jesus because we cannot save ourselves. We need a righteousness we do not possess and cannot earn. And that's through Jesus Christ. Friends, we're not saved by some vague faith. No, Paul makes it clear we're saved by faith in Christ alone. So first, justification is unmerited. But then second, notice it's universally required. Because notice what he says there in verse 22 and 23. I have to make the light. 22, he says, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Uh, When I was uh, 12 years old, I lived and I breathed baseball. It's all I could think about. It's all I ever wanted to do. One of my favorite things to do was play a game with someone else called Pepper. I don't know if you know what Pepper is, but it's pretty simple. One guy has a bat, and you get about, I know, from here to where Steve is, and you just throw the ball, and he just hits back at you, either line drives or, or ground balls. Well, one day I was playing Pepper with a friend. We're at his house. 
and my friend was standing um, up against his house, and right across, right above him was his sister's window. So he had the bat, and I was over here, and I was doing, and he was line driving, and I, I was fielding them beautifully. I mean, it was gold glove type fielding. You should have seen it. Well, I, I, got, I got so caught up in the moment that I, when I threw it to him, it, one got away from me, and it hit his sister's window, just in the corner, and broke the window. Now, I learned something about breaking windows that day. <laughs> and it's not necessarily super profound, but it is very true. And I learned it doesn't matter if you break a window with one baseball or a thousand baseballs. You know what? It's still broken and it needs to be replaced, right? Friend, it doesn't matter if you've racked up a lifetime of sins or only a few moments. Listen, you're still broken. Notice what Paul says. There is no distinction. Meaning, it doesn't matter if you've been a really religious person or a really wicked pagan. All people in this world, yourself included, have fallen short of God's glory. Meaning, you have failed to honor God as God. You've rebelled against him. And can I ask, do you really believe that? Several years ago, my wife was talking to a young girl about Christianity, and this girl, she expressed interest in becoming a Christian. So my wife asked her, said, Tell me, do you believe, do you believe that you are a sinner? And the girl immediately replied, No, I'm not a sinner. To which my wife said, sorry, then you can't be a Christian. Because she went on to explain to her, look, to be a Christian, the first thing you must acknowledge is that you're a sinner and you cannot save yourself. And she was absolutely right. Friend, hear me, admitting the fact that you're a sinner, that you failed to honor God as God, is the first necessary step for you to becoming a Christian. Do you believe it? Do you see yourself as a sinner unable to save yourself? Because, friend, that's who you truly are. Because it's only when you can see yourself correctly that you then are able to receive the good news that we see next, and that is justification is freely given to sinners. It's unreservedly offered. Look at verse 24. 25. He says, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's forbearance because of divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. Justification is unmerited, universally required, and unreservedly offered. Uh, the U.S. Marine Corps once featured an ad that it had a picture of a sword, and then beneath the sword it had these words, earned, never given. 
The idea being, if you want to be a Marine, you must earn that title through sacrifice, hardship, and training. Aren't we thankful for our Marines? Amen? Their phrase, earned, never given. Friend, the exact opposite of true is true for Christianity. You know what the message of the gospel is? Given, never earned. You cannot save your own soul and God will not save anyone who tries to save their own soul. No, salvation comes only to those who will humbly receive salvation as a free gift through faith in Christ alone. Notice how Paul speaks of justification as a gift. A gift of God's grace that is to be received by faith. Do you see it there in verse 24? It's a gift. This means it's not something you can work for or earn. Now, I don't, I don't know about you, but I love gifts. Who doesn't love receiving gifts, right? I mean, even if you say it's not your love language, it's one of them, okay? We all love receiving gifts, okay? And there are several things about this gift of justification I want to draw your attention to. First, it is of grace. This means we don't deserve it. Second, this gift provides redemption in Jesus. This means the debt you accrued to God due to your sin has been paid. Our sin earns us God's wrath, and Jesus paid that debt. And then third, uh, have you ever received a gift from someone? Especially like maybe a really expensive gift. And when you opened it up, and you looked on the box, this really expensive gift, and the person who gave you the gift, they accidentally left the price tag on? Or have you ever given a gift and intentionally left the price tag on just so the person knows how much you spent on them, Right? You want them to know how much you paid. Friend, Paul in this, pri in this passage, he's leaving the price tag on. Notice, he wants you to know just how much it cost God to save you of your sins. And notice, what's the price tag? It cost God the death of his son. Jesus paid that debt by his blood. The blood we sang about this morning. What can wash away my sins? What? Nothing. Nothing but what? The blood of Jesus. Friend, it cost Jesus his life in order to save you. And we know this is the case. We know it cost Jesus his life to save us because of that word propitiation. Now, propitiation, isn't that a fancy word? <laughs> Don't say it very fast. I'm even having a hard time struggling at normal speed. Okay, Propitiation. It's a fancy word, but please hear me. It is a life-giving word. When Paul says that Jesus is our propitiation, that means Jesus is the sacrifice that completely satisfies God's just wrath for our sin. So, uh, yeah, several years now, I was driving with my kids, and I remember this. 
And I believe, I believe it was Daniel at the time. He was four years old. And he asked me in the car, he says, Dad, is God ever angry? And I said, yes. He said, God is angry, not, not just at sins, but sinners. People who have rebelled against him, and he's angry at them, and rightly so. But, Christian, that Jesus is our propitiation means that through the death of Christ, God's anger and wrath towards you, sinner, has been completely satisfied and extinguished in the cross of Christ. So God is no longer angry at you, Christian. All the just wrath you deserve for your sin, Jesus absorbed on the cross. Amen? And I, man, and this has significant implications. And this is one of the reasons why we're, we're doing this theme called to counsel and I'm giving my life to biblical counseling and to the preaching of God's word because this is life-giving truth. One of the implications from this, Christian, what this means is that you can be assured of your salvation. Please hear me, this is so precious. Because Jesus is our propitiation, Christian, you can lay your head down at night and know confidently, confidently that you are right with God. What a gift! That should extinguish so many anxieties for you, Christian. <coughs> Today, you can go home and rest and know you are right with God because Jesus is our propitiation. Because God's just wrath towards you for your sin has been satisfied in the death of Jesus. Um, uh, Mark, Mark Dever is an author and a pastor, and he recently spoke about the Protestant Reformation at a conference, and one of the things he pointed out is that prior to the Protestant Reformation, listen to this, the Roman Catholic Church taught and still teaches today that it is errant presumption for any individual to be confident that they will go to heaven when they die. This is because they don't know if they will commit a mortal sin. And even if they don't commit a mortal sin, they don't know how many other sins they'll have to work off in the Catholics' understanding of purgatory. This is why when I tell, or you and I tell a Roman Catholic friend that I know that I'm saved, what they hear, and their way of thinking is arrogance. In all, in all innocence, what they think I'm saying is that I'm perfect. That's not what we're saying. Rather, I'm not admitting that I'm perfect. No, instead I am trusting the perfect righteousness of Jesus to save me. Specifically, I'm taking God at his word when he says that Jesus was put forth as a propitiation by his blood. That Christ's death completely satisfied the judgment I am owed for my sin. I don't have any sins to work off after death. 
Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it what? Why is no Amen. Then finally, we learned that justification is unquestionably perfect. This is verses 25 to 26. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by works. Is that what it says? No, to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Notice again the phrase, it was to show. He says, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just, meaning he punishes sins, and the justifier, meaning he declares righteous, of the one who has faith in Jesus. Notice it was, this was to show, this was to show, this was to show. Let me ask you, and again, you, you don't have to say it out loud, but think with me, how do you know if a person is good? I recently asked this to a bunch of children, and right away one of the kids answered, by their actions. And Paul is going towards the same idea here. Notice Paul ends this paragraph by proclaiming that God is good by his actions. Specifically, Paul is teaching here that God's act of justifying sinners by faith is unquestionably perfect. You see, for God to be good, listen, he can't just let bygones be bygones. He can't turn a blind eye to sin. God would not be good if he did that. No, for God to be good, for God to be just, he must punish sin. And this is what God has done for all who believe in Jesus Christ. Notice, Paul says that in former times, God passed over sins. This does not mean God revoked the punishment for sin. Rather, he just suspended the punishment. Right? The sacrificial system in the Old Testament pointed towards the day when God would send Jesus Christ as the all-sufficient sacrifice for our sins. On the cross of Christ, God has shown himself to be just, meaning the penalty demanded by the law is not removed but paid by Christ. Furthermore, he has also shown himself to be the justifier, the one who provides the means of justification and who declares people to be in right standing with himself. Friend, you want to see the justice of God? Look to the cross. You want to see the love of God? Look at the cross. For there God has made provision for your sin. There God has demonstrated and made known and shown by his actions that justification is unquestionably perfect. Friend, you can be made right with God simply by faith in Jesus Christ alone. 
Have you done that? Have you received this free gift? If not, I would plead with you to let day be the day of salvation for you. Confess to God your sinner. Own that. And then believe by faith that Jesus' death and resurrection is sufficient to save you. As we've talked about before, saving faith, you not only need to comprehend this good news that our text has just articulated, you not only need to have a conviction that it's true, but also if you really believe something, there's going to be a commitment there. I can tell you all day that I believe that I can get on the back of a tightrope artist and he will carry me across the river here. I believe it. I believe that guy can carry me across the river over to the other side of Indiana. But it's not until I get on his back that I'm really showing that I believe it. There's no commitment yet to my faith. Friend, have you gone all in? This is why we talk about sitting in the chair. Have you gone all in, putting all your confidence in Jesus Christ alone, committing yourself to Him, and this incredible offer that you can be saved by faith? If you'd like to know more about this, I'd be happy to talk with you. Me and one of the elders would love to. But don't let another moment pass from let today be the day of salvation for you. Let's pray.